Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings and welcome to this week's edition of the Diffusion Science Radio Show, the only science radio show that you're ever going to need. This week we're talking about dust older than the solar system, we're talking about identifying people through their biometrics, and we're going to have a chat about whether you really can actually recycle condoms. But first up, here's Victoria Bond with the news. glow-in-the-dark monkeys could shine a light on human diseases. With the help of a jellyfish gene, Japanese researchers have genetically modified primates to glow in the dark. While these are not the first primates to do so, they're the first that pass on this trait to their progeny. The scientists used retroviruses to insert green fluorescent protein into marmoset embryos. They obtained five transgenic monkeys, which expressed the fluorescent protein in every cell of their body. What's almost more impressive is that when they took sperm from a transgenic monkey and fertilized a normal marmoset egg, a significant amount of the progeny also glowed under ultraviolet light. This research demonstrates that a gene can be introduced into primate bloodlines and subsequently inherited. Scientists are hopeful that this technique will help with research of diseases such as Parkinson's or motoneuron diseases, which are inherited. However, animal right activists have cried out against creating bloodlines of primates with inheritable diseases. Stephen Chu, Obama's new energy secretary, is suggesting that all the world's roofs be painted white as an effort to offset global warming. Apparently, the move would help save energy and money by reducing the need for air conditioning. It would also slow global warming by reflecting the sun's rays back into space. He said lightening the roofs and the roads in urban environments would offset the global warming effects of all the cars in the world for 11 years. Stephen Chu hopes that if the U.S. leads the way with energy-efficient measures and boosting the use of renewable energy such as wind and solar power, other countries will follow. Well, money might not grow on trees, but plastic might. Scientists at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory have found a way of transforming plant cellulose into plastic in one single step. The cellulose gets converted into 5-hydroxymethyl furfural, which is a basic building block for fuel, polyesters, and other petroleum-based chemicals. However, the process is still expensive, and the resulting product is laced with impurities, which makes it difficult to use. But it does show promise to creating an alternative to plastics. An innovative plan to retrieve comet particles from the Earth's stratosphere has hit pay dirt with the discovery that some predate the formation of the solar system. Here's Darren Osborne speaking to Dr. Henna Boosman of the University of Manchester. First of all, uh, can you tell me about the discovery that you made um, with this comet dust? Yes, we analysed interplanetary dust, that is dust that is um, in the outer, uh, captured in the outer atmosphere around the Earth. Uh, now the airplanes are flying airplanes, 
sometimes and collect this dust and we analyze it in the laboratory. And we found very interesting um, building blocks of the solar system. So it is assumed that some of the dust that formed our solar system, the solar system formed out of a dust cloud uh, and, and some gas. And some of this material has preserved in, in comets. And comets from time to time come very close to the Earth, or at least the, the dust that is um, released from the comets can be captured on Earth. And we got some of this material and uh, looked at it in the laboratory. How do you know the origin of this dust, say, compared to something that formed in the solar system or outside the solar system? Yeah, that's one of the most important and one of the most difficult questions. Um, one of the properties of this dust is a very interesting signature. You can look at isotopes. Isotopes are atoms with different mass. So uh, we know that, for example, stars in other solar systems at the end of their lifetime pro produce elements that have a different isotopic signature. And if you look at these signatures, we can identify them as not from our solar system. And comets are believed to have um, a large number of these grains from other stars. So we looked for these signatures and identified a, a large number of grains which have signatures that we can't explain with, um, uh, with mechanisms in the solar system. So the comets would have been collecting the dust while they were sitting out in the Oort cloud? Right. Uh, there are different regions where comets are stored at uh, present, and one of it is the, the Oort cloud. And we believe, or in general, it is believed that comets have collected their matter in the beginning of the solar system 4.56 billion years ago, and then they never changed anymore. Um, if you look at the Earth, for example, or the terrestrial planets, they look like silicate rocks. They have an iron core, they have silicates around it, they are massive, um, dense materials. Comets are completely different. Comets are mixtures of tiny dust grains and ices and uh, volatile elements. They do not have all these um, we call that um, differentiation where you form uh, solid uh, cores and solid mantles. So comets are very different. Comets are the more or less the, the, the refrigerators of that stuff that made our solar system. Okay. The, the classic view of how a solar system forms seems to be that you get a, a cloud of dust and, and then it coalesces or collapses in on itself and that produces the sun and then later on the planets. Is it possible that, that the dust that these comets collect is from that process or is it fairly easy to determine that it is from another source? Oh, yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, we have this uh, accreting uh, cloud of dust, and in the outer edges, when you, when you look at the solar system in the middle, the sun is, of course, uh, hot and irradiating and changes the material which is close to it. But the comets are in the outer solar system far in far distance from the sun, so they really keep 
the original uh, accreting material um, and never change their composition. Now, tell us a little bit about how you collected this dust because it is quite unique. You mentioned it was using uh, a high-altitude plane. Right. Um, there is a, a prediction that um, in, in 2003, there will be a crossing of the Earth with dust fr uh, fr from a comet, the comet Drix-Gellerup. And uh, there was a prediction that when NASA, NASA flies airplanes into uh, the upper atmosphere at 20 uh, kilometers, when NASA flies in certain days and collect this dust, there will be a much higher probability to collect dust from this certain comet Drix-Gellerup. So NASA went up there with collectors. They are mounted on, on the airplanes and flew the, the airplanes through the atmosphere for a couple of hours and then came down uh, back with dust collected in these collectors. Now, from reading your um, paper, there was only a, a very small handful of, of dust particles that you were able to say were extraterrestrial. I mean, is it like looking for a needle in a haystack? Because there would have been lots of dust from the Earth, I would have presumed, in all that. That's, that's right. Of course, in 20 kilometers, uh, the dust from the Earth is not that abundant anymore. Um, but of course, you still have particles like uh, rocket exhaust from other missions, or you have volcanic grains, and all these must be identified identified first. But if you look at them uh, under the microscope, for example, with a very high resolution microscope, or NASA will do that for you, you can find material which is really fluffy, very fine-grained material, and there's a high probability that this is already extraterrestrial. So NASA will do already some selection for you and send you some of the most promising grains. And that's what they did. And we, we looked at a couple of grains and um, we didn't find any terrestrial ones. So they were all extraterrestrial, but of course not all of them are as interesting as the one that we, we, we talked about. Okay. Now, there was a, a mission, a fairly famous mission over the last um, number of years that returned some samples by the name of Stardust. I mean, they... they took a number of years and, and, and quite a bit of money to develop this spacecraft. Now, from all reports, they haven't had the level of success that you've had, had they? Yeah, that's right. That's uh, one of our major points that we found in, in, uh, in two grains, we found a uh, large number, 11 of these grains that have formed in, in other solar systems before our sun has uh, accreted their material. And in the whole experiment on, on the, the dust that has been brought back with the Stardust mission from Comet Wild 2. They found only three, and this mission has uh, finished in 2006 already, so the researchers looked for these grains for two years now and have found only a very small number of, of these grains. So that in that comparison, uh, the dust that has, uh, NASA has kept in, uh, or collected in the outer atmosphere is, is much more primitive, much more pristine. Do you therefore see that missions such as your own using high-altitude aircraft would be more likely than, say, another sample return mission from a spacecraft? Well, these collection campaigns are certainly uh, one way to find cometary dust, and that's very important, of course. There is also some kind of bias if you because you have completely different collection techniques. The dust 
settles down into the atmosphere by its own. So there's no no collection mechanism until the airplane comes with the with their collectors. When you go to a comet, you have collector materials and you have to catch the dust from the dust tail. And during this capture process, there's a lot of melting and change going on. So there's a, a, a bias towards our dust collection. So in future, there will be certainly collections by NASA in the upper atmosphere to collect more of this dust, especially if there are predictions that we get dust from a certain comet. But there must be also missions going directly to the comet and collect dust, because only that is the way to find uh, dust where you exactly know this must be from that uh, certain comet. When NASA goes into the atmosphere, there's always the probability to collect dust from a certain co comet, but you can't be 100% sure. Mm. Could it also be that you were lucky that, that, that the comet that you looked at happened to contain some of these particles, whereas VILT-2, that the Stardust spacecraft was chasing, may not have had any of it at all? Yeah, that is, of course, a possibility that uh, the researchers can't exclude at this point. There's a lot of uh, discussion going on in the community why dust brought back by the VILT, from Comet VILT-2 by the Stardust mission is so less primitive. It contains so much material that must have been formed near the sun and not in the outer solar system. So there is a lot of discussion if these, this comet might be really distinct from other comets, which we know that uh, they are very primitive, or if there is some other mechanism that we don't really understand. Mm. Well, look, thank you very much for, for joining us and uh, all the best with your research. Thank you very much. That was Darren Osborne with Dr. Henna Boosman of the University of Manchester. Biometrics is the future of identifying people through their unique characteristics. I had a chat recently to an expert in biometrics, Dr. Stephanie Shukers from the US. Here's what she had to say. I chatted to Stephanie Shuckers, Associate Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering from Clarkson University, New York, who conducts research into how to prevent fingerprinting systems from being spoofed by creating fake fingerprints out of such materials as simple as Play-Doh. I started off by asking her about what she does and how she got involved in biometrics. Um, I'm a professor in electrical engineering, and um, I do work on what's called signal and image processing, so taking signals or images and, and making decisions based on them. I have done and still do a lot of research in biomedical engineering and got involved in biometrics, which is essentially, you know, the idea of using a fingerprint, face, iris, um, to identify somebody. So it has similar kinds of signal, image processing, pattern recognition issues. And part of your research was to try and fool these systems, was it? Yeah, um, as we started researching in this field, um, we discovered, you know, partially based on my biomedical engineering background, that that there was this vulnerability that biometric systems can be spoofed with simple things like Play-Doh fingers or fake um, fingers made from, like, gelatin. Um, and so because I had this biomedical engineering background, we weren't so interested in necessarily spoofing. We were interested in developing ways to prevent spoofing. 
and as such needed to spoof the system to test their methods to prevent spoofing, if that makes sense. And you could really spoof these systems with Play-Doh. Yes, yes. Yeah, it was fun. We got to go to the toy store and buy a bunch of different things and play around. And my job's great. <laughs> it sounds like a fantastic job. So when you're trying to spoof a fingerprint, what's important? Is it just recreating the pattern on the fingerprint, or is there more to it than that? You need a way to interface with the scanner. And so the pattern is what's most important, but you also have to have a, a material that will be imaged by the scanner. So, for example, some capacitance-based scanners only take moist materials, and that's why Play-Doh works so well. Other optical scanners are okay with, say, silicon, um, because that's that's not moist. That's like a more rubbery-like. It looks so, um, so it, it so there is kind of an interaction component um, that's important to be scanned by typical biometric scanners. Now that there are at least one manufacturer that that has a component of of that liveness in it. One or two, I should say, manufacturers. That is that they're product won't scan or can scan but see the difference between a live and a fake finger. But most of them don't, just need a special material to interface with the scanner. I'd heard that on the show Mythbusters, they were able to simply photocopy uh, a fingerprint and that was enough to fool a fingerprint scanner to get into a secured building. Is this an early generation type of fingerprint scanner or is this something we can still do at the moment? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think some of the optical scanners, that's the case, that, that a simple image with some, a moisture barrier between the glass and, and whatever your image is, it would probably have to be on a transparency, um, but it, it is possible for some of them. And what are some of the ways that your research is suggesting that we can make these systems a little bit more foolproof to protect them from such things as simply photocopying a fingerprint? So the idea is... Obviously, we can add some additional measurements to the scanner, so additional sensors like say, temperature or your pulse or the electrocardiogram. And those would be a means of sort of determining if someone or if the finger was a live finger or a fake finger. What we were kind of interested in is this idea of, of is there information in the image, the live images themselves directly captured from the reader that would tell us a fake finger versus a live finger. And so as we studied it, we noticed that, you know, your live finger is moist, and most of the scanners have a sensitivity to that moisture. Um, and so even like, like your case with the optical scanner is adding a little moisture. Um, and so we actually could see that there were changes in that moisture over multiple images and sort of specific characteristics of live images that weren't really true of, of the fake fingers. And uh, a lot of where that moisture comes from is from the perspiration in your finger. So in, in some sense, we were laughing because we have a sweat detector to detect. But it's not just the presence of sweat. It's the actual... Uh, moisture patterns that you see on the fingerprint image that are distinctive. I guess another point that I should have probably made early in the conversation is the worry of, of people have that with the idea of if a biometric scanner can be spoofed, it's not a useful technology. And I, I try to caution people to say, what is your security question and what is your solution now and does biometrics 
improve in terms of whatever your goals may be, convenience, improved security. So just because there is a vulnerability, well, all security systems have a vulnerability. It doesn't mean it's not necessary technology that might be useful for an application. And I have a common example that I use is passports. You know, the current state of passports, a photo could be 10 years old and a guy looking at you or a lady looking at you to see if it matches. So would adding a fingerprint improve the security at the borders? You know, I would argue that that would be a step above that that particular technology, that the present technology. Can someone somehow slip a thin, fake finger over their hand? Sure. That's the state of the technology now, but you've made steps in improved security, in, in my viewpoint, for that particular application. And that was Stephanie Shuckers talking about biometrics. Now, here's a question for our modern green times. Can you recycle condoms? I had a little bit of an investigation, and here's what I found. In general, condoms are made of latex and are not recyclable. It is probably better to dispose of your used condoms in the rubbish, where they will eventually end up as landfill, than flushing them down the toilet, which not only wastes water, but puts them out into the sewerage where they eventually wind up in an anaerobic digester and reduced to sludge. It may be constructive to look at the steps we should take when being environmentally friendly. Reduce, reuse, recycle. So reduction. How should red-blooded males go about reducing their condom use without reducing their sexual activity? The answer may lie in alternative methods of contraception although there is nothing out there as good at preventing STDs as condoms. So unless you are in a loving, sexually transmitted, disease-free relationship, you'd better keep using them. So for now, let's have a look at the contraceptive alternatives. The pill, a combination of estrogen and progestin, is one of the most popular methods of contraception. It is a female contraceptive that limits fertility by preventing the ovaries from releasing eggs. But is it environmentally friendly? As opposed to condoms, there are no waste products that need to be thrown out by the packaging, which you can recycle. But the process of making the pill I do not imagine is particularly environmentally friendly. Some of the contents of the pill are synthetic organic compounds and others are isolated from natural sources, or at least made using biological processes. They all come together in an organic lab, and organic solvents and other chemicals are used in its making. These chemicals require specialist disposal and are more often than not incinerated. Any leaks into the ecosystem can be deadly and catalytic metals need to be mined out of the ground. This does not paint a positive picture, but as a chemistry graduate, albeit in a physical theoretical chemistry, I am all for the advancement of science and human knowledge, even if it comes at a small cost. Such advancements may one day solve the problem of plastic in our oceans. Our second method is the Catholic method, often known as withdrawal, getting off one stop before Central Station. It has many names and simply doesn't work not to mention the fact that you are vulnerable to STDs, as you are with the pill, and it's sexually ungratifying. It only takes one scare to let you know that it does not work, as pre-ejaculate fluid means that there is never a good time to pull out. Our third method is abstinence. The biggest environmental threat on the planet is us. There are too many humans on Earth. Housing and transport deplete our natural resources and pollute the environment, especially given the exponential population growth in developing countries. My personal viewpoint, however, is this. If you are intelligent, don't use condoms and breed. This will bring more intelligent people into the world who may eventually solve our problems. If you are dumb, use condoms and create plastic waste. Hopefully the intelligent offspring of others will remedy your condom use. 
Now we've looked at reduction, let's look at reusing condoms. This is definitely not going to happen to me, but it's not unheard of. If you go to my site, mrscienceshow.com, that's www.mrscienceshow.com, you'll see a video which comes from a Filipino documentary on how prostitutes recycle condoms. Go down this road if you dare. And this brings us back to recycling. In southern China, condoms are being recycled into hairbands. And in Singapore, a man has taken to collecting them and drying them out on his windowsill. When it rains, it causes them to drip on the people below. So, Victoria, what do you think of that? Well, I thought you had a lot of really great suggestions. Um, yeah, thank you. You've, you've taken it really from an, a new and unusual perspective. Um, <laughs> but I do have an issue with um, the pill. Mm-hmm. So you said earlier that there wasn't any waste from the pill, except in the manufacturing stage? Well, that, that was what I initially thought, but I, I bow to expertise in this area. Well, apparently, one of the problems with the pill is that there's there's an excess of hormone, which the um, female um, excretes into her urine. So it's causing these large doses of estrogen, progesterone to become part of the environment and, you know, mix in the water and cause all sorts of havoc there. Some studies have found that in male species are becoming more and more feminine. So um, they're finding hermaphrodites and they're also finding that the the distance between um, male genitalia and the anus is getting s- smaller and smaller. In some fish, really? In or some, yeah, in some in fish. Marine life. So that's fascinating. So maybe the pill is not so environmentally friendly. So no. what does this bring us back to? Abstinence. It's not a happy world we live in these days, this modern green world, is it? So we need to maybe draw up a list of uh, people, people that get to... Yeah. Well, if you'd like to uh, join the diffusion list uh, of procreators... Why don't you drop us an email, diffusion at 2SCR.com. I'm sure we'll reply and find somebody for you to breed with. Well, that's about all we've got time for in this week's edition of the Diffusion Science Radio Show. My name is Mark West and I've been joined today in the studio by Victoria Bond. If you'd like any more information on Diffusion, if you'd like to join the Diffusion Procreation Club, get over to our website at www.diffusionradio.com. And from there, you can subscribe to our podcast and you can email us at diffusion at 2SCR.com. Diffusion was produced this week by myself in the luxurious studios of 2SCR in Sydney. We're also brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Thanks again for joining us. My name's Mark West. We'll see you next week on the Diffusion Science Radio Show.